turn in your Bibles to John chapter, secondly? It wasn't second. But turn your Bibles to John chapter 7. If you didn't get one of these handouts, <clears throat> I was really tired of the, I, there's like a lot of clicking. I didn't feel like clicking this week with a PowerPoint. So if you didn't get a handout, it's got a verse list on it. Um, my beautiful bride will bring you one if you don't have one. Does anyone need one? One person to shame. That's it. Oh, nope, two, three. Okay. And Scott. Thank you. Um, this is just going to be some of the verses we looked at. And if you've got a pencil, you might want to pencil in John chapter 16, because I forgot to put that in there. But John um, chapter 16, uh, verses 8 through 11, will be another text that we look at. Um, I botch it even when I go old school. Like, what can I say? <laughs> so, as we... Uh, Look at our text for this morning, John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Let me set the stage for you. What's happening at this point is, is Jesus is at the Festival of Booths. He's in Jerusalem, and, and the Festival of Booths, or the Festival of um, Tabernacles, as some translations give you, is basically a seven-day commemoration of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and how God provided for them in all sorts of crazy, miraculous ways. Manna and quail and water and, and just remembering what that was like. And Jesus is there and Jesus is doing what Jesus does best. He's causing mischief. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers, they're kind of fed up with Jesus. And Jesus is the center of all of this controversy. People are saying, is this a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he a heretic? Should we jail him? What should we do with this guy? And they even send people out to go and arrest Jesus. But everyone's sort of weirded out by this guy. And so no one lays a hand on him. The last day, the great day, the kind of the, the, big, the, the big finale Jesus stands up in John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So as I said, this is uh, during the Jewish celebration, the festival of booths or tabernacles or tents. And, and basically what they would do is all of these, all of the people throughout Israel would come to the temple and for one week they would all have a giant camping trip. I mean, you think that family fun, whatever they call it over there in uh, Michiana is big. Imagine an entire nation of people who have gathered around the temple and none of them are getting hotel rooms it's illegal. No hotel rooms all week. In fact, what you have to do is you need to go outside and you find stuff to build a temporary dwelling. So sticks and logs and leaves, good luck, right? I mean, that's, that's what they're doing, just like you would do if you were camping in the wilderness. So what they're doing is it's, it's sort of, if you spend any time in the South, Civil War reenactments. I mean, it, it's similar to that. They're reenacting what it was like for them when they were in the wilderness so that through reenacting they could remember the miracle of God's provision. And so as they're building these houses, these temporary dwellings, and they're all over the place, the first thing they would do every morning, though, is incredibly significant to our topic this morning. The first thing every morning is they prepared for the morning rituals, the morning sacrifices. There would be a procession from the temple down to the pool of Shalom, Siloam. And the priest would take with him a golden pitcher. 
And he would go into the, into the pool and he would dip the pitcher into the pool and he would bring it up as the people sang Isaiah 12 too. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. As they sang this, the priest would, would carry this pitcher of water into the temple as they all proceeded to follow him. And he would pour it into silver basins. And this was a remembering, a reenacting of how God miraculously gave them waters in the desert. You might remember the story from Numbers chapter 20. Moses is there and they've brought the people and they've been wandering for some time. And finally they come to a place that's very arid. There's no water at all. No water for the congregation. And so the congregation, all of these Israelites gather together to oppose Moses and Aaron. And the scriptures say they argued with them. They cried out against them and they said, Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And we see this throughout the, the, the wanderings. They're constantly crying out to God, Why did you bring us here to die? Sort of like Emery when she says, I'm starving. No, you're not starving. You just are unwilling to walk the 20 feet to the cupboard. I mean... There's, there's a sense in which they're being very, very childish here because they've seen God provide again and again and again. And here is again their lack of trust in him. And so he sends Moses to a rock and he says, Moses, speak to the rock. And Moses is really ticked off and he's got a stick in his hand. And instead of hitting one of his neighbors, which is probably something he was feeling, he took it out on the rock and he hits the rock and the rock splits open and water just comes bursting forth. And if you think about the miracle... What is less likely to come out of a piece of stone than, a, than water, right? I mean, there's no water in it. It's just a piece of rock. And so this great miracle exposes living, literally, water. It's not a stagnant pool. It's, it's, it's rushing. It's coming forth. It's a geyser. It's coming out. And it is literally life unto these people. So while all of these Israelites are gathered around the temple to live in their tents and to, to, to commemorate how God provided them living water, they're also looking forward. As we read in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 21, Zechariah foretells a time when all of the nations will come to Israel, will there be restoration worldwide, and all of the people every year from every nation will keep the festival of booths. And so if you can imagine, put yourself in the situation where Jesus is at on this great day. You have all of these people who have gathered around and for a whole week they've been giving themselves over to remembering what God has done. Past, present, and their hope of the future. And Jesus stands up on that last day and he says, if you come to me, I will give you living water. Now for us, that sounds like just kind of like a, a weird thing to do. If you did that at one of our potlucks, we might have you committed, right? That's bizarre. But for all of them who are there, they hear Moses. They hear Zechariah. They hear Jesus attaching himself directly to Scripture. They hear Jesus saying, past, present, future fulfillment is going to be found in me. They hear this is the end of our thirst. This is the end of our longings. This is the end of our wandering. Nobody knows what to do with this. Jesus is speaking something powerful here. And I think he's speaking something both physical and spiritual because the truth of the matter is that physically, y'all need water, right? I mean, the Israelites might have been complaining, but they were definitely correct. We need water. One of the things that I find most often is that we're desperately afraid 
of not having enough. And we've been talking about that over the past few weeks. But what's seen throughout the scriptures is that again and again and again, God has provided for his people. And if you are his people, the promise then is handed off to you. And this is confirmed throughout Jesus' ministry. Jesus, when he's starving to death himself, I mean, he's 40 days of fasting. 40 days of fasting, and at the end of it, Satan comes and he says, hey, you're hungry, aren't you? And Jesus says, yeah, I'm really hungry. He says, make the stones bread. And Jesus says, what? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus teaches us to pray what? Give us this day our daily bread. And Jesus says just a few verses later, he says, and don't be worried, don't be anxious, don't fret about this, because God knows what you need before you say, hey God, I need this. So why are you fearful? Why are you afraid? God provides for birds and he provides for flowers and Solomon didn't look as those guys and you are worth more than they. Why worry? We see Jesus feed 4,000 and then 5,000. We see him miraculously providing. We see him sending his disciples out. He says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God and don't even take an extra shirt with you because God will provide for you. We hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life. I am the fount of living waters. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And if this is the truth that we see again and again in the people of God, if God has provided for us again and again and again, why would we be like the Israelite people and say, why have you brought us here, Lord? Why wouldn't we just be confident that tomorrow bread will be provided? Why are we afraid? Why are we, as Jack pointed out, so timid, so fearful, so in in need of protection? It's interesting to me that this is alive in us. And and this week I had this experience where um, I had a friend of mine, one of my closest friends, he got a hold of me and he said, hey, I need prayer. And he's a Christian, but he's not one of, he never says anything like this. So it's a very bizarre thing for him to say to me. And I was like, well, what's going on, man? Like, somebody must be dying. Something really terrible must be happening. And he starts telling me about this financial situation they're finding themselves in where they're really afraid they're not going to have enough. And as he begins to talk with me, I begin to realize uh, our financial situation is way worse than yours, bro. Like, way worse. <laughs> we're like, we're in trouble, right? And, and so as we're talking, I'm just like, why are you worried about this? Where has God ever failed to provide for you food and clothing? Where has God ever failed to give you everything that you need? Maybe not everything you want, but everything you need. And so I said to him, like, listen, I don't want to get too Joel Osteen on you, but, but listen, God's got this under control because we believe in a word called sovereignty, the authority and power of God to provide for his people. And if there's one thing you have to get as you read the scriptures is that God provides. And Jesus says, if you come to me, that provision will be manifested. God will meet what we need. So what hold of the future, what fear of the future do we have? More interestingly, I think, is the spiritual side of this. As Jesus calls out, all who would be thirsty, come to me and speak. And what's interesting as I was reading this text, and I never caught this before, is that Jesus himself is not the water. Jesus is going to give the water. This is the same thing he says to the woman at the well. He doesn't say, I'm the water, come and drink for me. He says, I will provide you living water and it will bubble up, well up, pour out to eternal life. Jesus isn't the water. So in the metaphor then, what is Jesus? Because metaphors mean a lot to Jesus. What is he? 
Well, if we go back to the situation that they find themselves in, they're telling the story of Moses and how Moses broke the rock and from the rock issued these waters of life. And so who is Jesus in this story? Jesus is the rock. He is the rock from which issues forth the living water. And um, then it leads me to the next question as well, what is the living water? Because even though, even though we like the sound, maybe living water, and, and this I think is important because I, you go to the Christian bookstore and there's got to be like 15 books that have living water or some version of that. You could listen to the Christian radio station, you'll get living water. People use it for all kinds of things, and yet here it means something very specific. And, it, and I know this is going to take away some of the flowery mystery, but poetry is awful, right? Poetry is terrible. It's not as bad as musicals, but it's really, really close. And it's really, really close and terrible because everyone is trying to be as obscure as possible. Like, if I could be more obscure, it's better poetry. That's nonsense. It's like the hippie answer. Like, well, it means whatever you want it to mean, man. Get off my lawn, hippies. I don't need you, right? <laughs> like, that's nonsense. And I love John because John is, like, forthright. He says, let me tell you, just in case you decide to get all, like, hoity-toity and mystical on me, let me tell you what the living water is. And he says that here. He says, now he said this about the Spirit. The living water is the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would receive, but as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it is the reception of the Holy Spirit that is the life-giving waters that is going to come pouring into the believer. And this is going to happen after his glorification, after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And under normal circumstances, I think we would skip over this. We'd be like, okay, Holy Spirit, like, move on. I, I don't want to do that. Because last week I said we esteem the church too little. This week I say we esteem the spirit too little. We, we don't pay enough attention to this topic. And we don't think much about this topic. And those people who do think about it, maybe like our charismatic friends, we think, oh, they've got it really under control. No, they're just louder about it. That's all. Like no one is really thinking biblically about what this means when we say the word Holy Spirit and what, we, what Jesus means when he says, I'm going to give you this living water. And so I know... Um, I know this isn't maybe the most popular way to go about it, but we're just going to do some Bible study here this morning. So if you've got that sheet, please pull it out. You should all have that sheet. I wanted to give it to you so it's a little bit easier. Please feel free to look it up if you're fast enough flipping in your Bibles. Um, well, we get, begin there with the first text, which is John the Baptist speaking about Jesus. And he says, there's one that's to come, and the one that's to come is going to baptize you with the fire with the Holy Spirit. What's interesting about this text is John is baptizing for repentance. Jesus is going to baptize in the Spirit. And what's fascinating about this is that each of the four Gospels has this story. Each of the four Gospels gives us this same quote, the same information. And the Gospels are all very different. So if you find that in all four Gospels, maybe it's important. Maybe. And what's fascinating to me about this is if we begin to talk about why does Jesus matter? Like, what should you be excited about when it comes to Jesus? What's the first thing on your mind? Forgiveness of sins, right? I mean, that's our, that's our songs. That's what we talk about. For John the Baptist, it isn't forgiveness of sins. For John the Baptist, it's the Holy Spirit. Now, certainly he knows he's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. And it's not like you shouldn't be happy about that. You should be ecstatic about that. But when John says, I'm here to baptize, Jesus is going to baptize too. What's he going to baptize you with? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit's going to come over you. And this is like fire. It burns. It purifies. It changes. 
John's excited about the Holy Spirit. When was the last time we talked about the Holy Spirit and got excited? The Holy Spirit plays a major role in the book of John, and even as we begin to go through John, we can see the expansion, the the information begins to increase until we really get a good picture of it. Our next text comes um, in John chapter 3, where he is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says basically the same thing. I've come to do this same thing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. And that makes sense. We are born after the same kind. And so if you are born of the spirit, you are baptized in the spirit, right? That's what you belong to. But what does that mean, to be born of the spirit? The next reference um, comes in John chapter 3, verse 34, in which Jesus begins to connect it to something more. It says, For whom God has sent, that's himself, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And so we see the first connection. We've got the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is now connected to the words that Jesus is about to utter. The next reference comes from Jesus and the woman at the well, and he says to her that people need to worship, in, or there will come a time when people will worship in spirit and in truth. Some of you are still awake, right? Or maybe you're flipping. Um, what does that mean, spirit and truth? I've heard that my whole life, you know, and I've, I've sort of, I've always felt that there's this kind of like division in us, like you have like the dancing in the aisle spirit people. Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Are we supposed to be sitting with our hands on our lap singing all, you know, 47 verses of just as I am, like this truth side, like we have this kind of like this divide, like what is it, what does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? And And what I want to suggest is that Jesus isn't saying you have this and you have this, but he's trying to bring these two things together. He's trying to bring the Spirit together with the truth that we just read is the words that he is uttering, right? It is the words of God. And so it's not that we um, have two separate things, like we're either the truthers who are sitting quietly or the spiriters who are dancing in the aisle, but we are both of those things put together where we are both excited and filled with the Spirit and changed, but it is because of our connection to truth. They aren't separate. They cannot be divided. In John 6, 63, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Again, he's building on top of what he's already said. And he says that the words that I have spoken to you are both Spirit and life. And remember how the word spirit functions. Spirit is what God breathed into mankind when he brought Adam up. Right? He breathed into his nostrils the spirit, the breath of life. Spirit is the thing that animates us. It is the life force that is in us when the Bible uses that word. And so what is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is that gift of God that animates us. But here, again, what is connected to that spirit? It is his words. Jesus' words are life. The next quotation um, comes from chapter 7, and we're talking about that, so I'm going to skip over it. Um, The next sections, though, are John 14, John 15, and John 16, in which Jesus gives the largest information we receive on the Holy Spirit. People tend to jump to 1 Corinthians, or they tend to jump to Acts. But those are just describing things that are happening. Here, Jesus is actually teaching us what the Holy Spirit is going to do. So we should place these texts, the words of Jesus, I think, in in at least its proper position to guide the way that we read the rest of the text. Does that make sense, everybody, with me? Yes? Good. Sure, I'll take that. So, what we have in these texts are that the Holy Spirit is the helper 
and the one that is going to bring to obedience those commands that Jesus gives us. So John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit, that is the he that he's referencing, referencing there, will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. So he will aid us then in remembering, this is what Jack read earlier, this is going to aid us in remembering and understanding and putting into practice the teachings of Jesus. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Spirit in this situation is going to bear witness. He is going to bring truth that is connected again to Jesus. You see that? This is why, of course, Jesus must be glorified before we finally get Jesus uh, to set, before the Spirit comes upon us, because Jesus leaves and the Spirit comes. Finally, John chapter 16. Again, I apologize because I didn't have that on that list. John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And of course, if the ruler of this world is judged, what of those who have voluntarily lived under his rule? So let's bring all these threads together. That was a lot of Bible. Take a breath. All right. What do all of these things, if we bring them together, what do they mean? They give us a very large picture of who the Holy Spirit is. This is how you should do your Bible studies, by the way. You take a book, and you take a word, and you can study through it, and you look at the whole context of how it's used, and it opens up new vistas, and it brings out sureness of truth. And what do we see? We see Jesus then in chapter 7. He is the rock, and he is going to bring forth this living water, and this living water is the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give that Holy Spirit to those who believe, to those who are connected to those who are born of both water, as we talk about baptism, and born of the Spirit, that is the gift of God that is received at baptism. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I've said that verse before, as you can tell. (laughs) So we have all of this sort of making a lot of sense and connecting together. So what is the Spirit then doing? The Spirit is then the active, living presence in the life of the Christian, this gift of the Spirit that allows us to remember the words of Jesus and to put them into practice. The Holy Spirit reminds, the Holy Spirit bears witness, the Holy Spirit convicts, and the Holy Spirit judges. And we all say, ugh, right? It's so interesting, um, it's just so interesting when we think about John. And John says, I'm coming to, to, uh, to bring baptism for repentance. And there's one coming after me who's coming to bring the Holy Spirit. And, and I, like, I hear like John Lennon in the background, like, love, love, love. You know? And, and like, this is like the mantra that we hear coming forth. And I don't want to be like the stick in the mud, like the old cranky guy in the room, although I've already shown that I am the past two weeks. But I, I feel like nobody's listening to John all the way through because Jesus says, and when, or but John says, when he comes, he will bring uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and his winnowing fork is, is in his hand and he's clearing the wheat. He's clearing the threshing floor and he's gathering the wheat into the barn and he's burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. Like Jesus is the one that comes to separate those people who belong to him and those people who don't. And so there's like this really fearsome and real and true and hard truth about the Spirit that I think we often miss. Because we connect the Spirit with emotionalism. 
And it's not. The Spirit is the transformation that is happening. From Jesus' teachings spring forth the Spirit. And Jesus says, I invite you to come and to drink, to take it in. And I love this idea of Jesus also baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. Because what does this mean? It means that both within and without, I am being submerged into the teachings of Jesus. I am drowning in the teaching of Jesus so that the old man might die and that a new man might have a new spirit, a Holy Spirit, a gift and peace of God filling his heart that I might come up out of that water and I might live according to the new way, according to the age that is to come, according to the age of righteousness and peace and truth. That's what Jesus is doing, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit, and that's powerful stuff. And it bothers me when I hear people talk about the Spirit because I feel like everyone is missing this. And I want you all to be wise And understanding the truth that you might be wise unto salvation because we have charismatic churches that are being planted here in town, planted this last year, that tell if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they they attach to speaking in tongues and miracles, or hey, if you're not having people rolling around and dancing in the aisles or, or being knocked over or something like that, you don't have the Spirit. Well, in all of the texts that we read here that directly taught about the Spirit, where did it say the Spirit brings miracles? Where did it say that? I mean, certainly we know there is evidence in Acts, and the Spirit does act, and God does move, and God does heal people. I'm not saying he doesn't. But where is gauging the power of the Spirit connected with gauging the amount of people who are speaking in tongues or who are, who are feeling overjoyed or whatever? It's not there at all, is it? We also have Christians who are emotion junkies and, and they're hopping from church to church learning, looking for, or conference to conference or book to book or Christian CD to Christian CD looking for the next Jesus-y high. How many times have we heard, I can feel the Spirit moving in this place. You ever heard that? You said that? That's not true. You're having an emotional experience. And emotional experiences are great. If you said, man, I feel really good today. As you left the service, I would say Fantastic. My crankiness has not rubbed off on you. Wonderful, right? But let us never be under the illusion that emotion is how we gauge the spirit. Here there is no talk about emotion. Jesus doesn't have anything to say about that. Likewise, we have people running around saying, God has called me to this or God has called me to that. I listened to a sermon this week that broke my heart um, from a former Christian minister, a very important Christian minister, somebody whose name everyone would recognize Um, who has sort of spent any time in this movement, who is now living a lifestyle that is completely antithetical to what the scriptures have said. And you know what his message to the church that he was preaching to was? God called me to this. And I hear this. I've been here a year and a half. I cannot count how many people have sat in my office and said, well, I feel like this is what Jesus wants me to do. Really? Because I can show you in the verse, in the Bible, where Jesus tells you not to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jesus wants me to be happy. Balderdash. That is nonsense. What is the work of the Spirit here? The work of the Spirit is to call to memory the words of Jesus. The work of the Spirit is evidenced by conviction, by calling to righteousness, by judgment. The work of the Spirit is to get us on our knees so that God can wash us clean. The work of the Spirit is to change the heart. And until the heart is truly changed, it doesn't matter what you feel. Jesus didn't come 
to divide people who feel good to people who don't feel good. He came to judge and divide wheat from chaff. And wheat is fruit that is bore, and fruit that is bore always comes from the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, you remember that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, pain, all that good stuff. And so what do we have coming out of the Spirit? We have this truth that the Spirit's work is to bring us to Jesus, that he would bring us to the truth of the gospel, that the truth of the gospel would change my life, that the truth of the gospel would change the way I live. And maybe that comes with emotion. Great. Maybe it doesn't. Fine. How are you living? What is the conviction in your heart? And isn't that what we want? Like, isn't that, isn't that what we want? Haven't you been jumping from place to place, from CD to CD, from book to book, from feeling to feeling, and every time you drink from those cisterns, you realize you come up short, you realize that cistern is dry. Why not come to the well of living water that has been given to you? Why not come and drink? Why not come and be filled with truth? And I know that's not like sexy emotionalism. I know it's not like, hey, this is great, like this is some new truth. I know that's like old-fashioned, but it's still true. And nothing has changed. The message of Jesus has come to me. Come to me, those of you who have thirst in you. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, again, he's attaching us, telling us, go back to the Old Testament, read the scriptures. For out of your heart, once you come to me, Out of your heart will flow living waters because the Spirit will change you. I don't know where you stand on um, this whole situation that we've got going on. Kind of a lot of craziness. Um, And uh, this Kim Davis thing about whether she signs for um, homosexual marriages or not, and I really don't care. It's not the politics of it that interests me. What interests me is a friend of mine from Tennessee... um, put up this Facebook meme with a not very attractive picture of her, one of those good gotcha pictures, and like a list of her sins, which apparently include like some divorces and maybe affairs or something, I don't know, because I didn't really pay any attention to it. But at the end of it, it was, it, it gives this list and it says, and it doesn't matter because hashtag Jesus. And like the implication then is like, oh, look at this fool, look at this hypocrite. But I was like, yes, like, yes. That is exactly correct. Because of Jesus, all of that stuff is washed away. Because of Jesus, all of my guilt, all of my sin, all the stuff that has happened to me, all of the stuff that I have done, the Spirit works in my heart and convicts me and drags me to my knees and says, listen, you have done wrong. You have offended God. Your punishment is death, judgment, and hell. And Jesus says, no, not anymore. And he fills us with the Spirit so that we can step out of all of that junk and walk into a life that is holy. And without that, and without that, without both of these things, our gospel, our good news to the world is incomplete. It begins with judgment, but it ends with salvation. As we come to the rock, to the living waters. Paul's going to do a little song for us that I think illustrates that perfectly. Um, And then I'll come back up and we'll do a few words. Go ahead. The thing I notice about this text um, is, well, when Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What's so interesting to me about this text is that it doesn't seem to be about me. 
coming to Jesus again and again to get more and more of the living waters. He doesn't say, come to me again and again. You'll need me forever. Like, come and, 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 and take the living waters from me because it's all about you and being filled up and all about you and receiving joy and all about you receiving grace. But instead, what does it say here? It says, and out of my heart, out of your heart, will flow the streams of living water. Where one drink from the Holy Spirit will well up in your heart springs of living water that will bubble out and flow out. In other words, you become a tributary of the grace of God that he wants to pour into you so that you can turn around and pour into other, Jesus and other people. And that's why our, our catchphrase here is to share Jesus because that is what we are about. Sharing Jesus with one another, pouring into one another, pouring into those who we don't know very well, pouring into those people who are checking us out at Meyer, pouring to those people who we really, really, really can't even stand, pouring out grace because the grace of God has poured into you more glory, more glory than the world has known. So come, you who are thirsty. Come, you who are weak. I love the end of Revelation. The Spirit and the kingdom say, come. And let the one who hears, that's you and me, those of us who have, who have found ourselves in Jesus, let us say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let them come. So my encouragement to you this morning is to come. To find your life in Jesus, to drink from the living waters. If you are thirsty today, then get on your knees. If you're thirsty today and you need to come down front, then come down front. If you're thirsty today and you need to talk with somebody, come and talk to somebody. But, but meet Jesus today. And meet the living waters of the Holy Spirit. And let the Holy Spirit bring upon you a new sense of conviction so that you can cast the past aside and that you can look forward and move forward and share Jesus. Let's do that as we stand and sing this final song.